Welcome to the Parkcast series, episode 47, part 1. Online Child Pornography. The Parkcast series brings evidence-informed child welfare practice to life by highlighting literature reviews from the Particle Archives. This first podcast in the Child Sexual Exploitation series will discuss online sexual exploitation of children. Focus will be placed on those individuals who participate in the exploitation of children online, differences between types of offenders, and reasons why people may offend. Due to the sensitive nature of this podcast, it is imperative that you take your time in listening to it and that you debrief with colleagues or supervisors about feelings and responses associated with this topic. Materials that display the exploitation of children are often indicative of actual abuse that has been perpetrated against a child at the time the photo or video was created. Child welfare organizations are responsible for the protection of children in their jurisdiction and aim to safeguard children from abuse and neglect. It is understandable that child welfare workers are concerned about the production, exchanging, and viewing of materials that exploit the children they support. Finding the person or persons responsible for the creation and distribution of these materials and the children that have been victimized is paramount. Furthermore, those who view or continue to distribute the materials displaying this exploitation are assisting the perpetual victimization of that child. While there are several ways that children can be sexually exploited, This podcast will focus on the sexual exploitation of children and youth specifically related to online child pornography. For the purpose of this literature review, we will be using language that is most consistent with the scientific literature, whether or not that term is inclusive or person-centered. For example, the term sex offender is not a person-centered descriptive, as opposed to the term person who committed a sexual offense. However, to keep in line with the literature, the term offender or sex offender will be used to describe a population of people who have been detected and identified as participating in these specific illegal activities. Maintaining a focus on consistent language will make it easier to seek out additional literature on the topic, as you will be familiar with the most common terminology currently in use. It is important to highlight that the internet has enabled the sexual exploitation of children and youth in many ways, including child pornography, solicitation or grooming of children, and trafficking. Some offenses in the realm of child pornography directly involve children, for example, the production of a child pornography video, while other offenses do not involve direct victimization of children, for example, writing an erotic story about a child. We must acknowledge that the umbrella term of child pornography can encompass a wide variety of offenses, and that this distinction is not always made clear within the literature. Individuals who use the internet to access, download, distribute, or produce child pornography will be referred to as online child pornography offenders to highlight that their offenses are predominantly committed online. Similarly, the term contact offender will be used to describe those individuals who have committed a contact offense against a child in person. And the term mixed offender 
will be used to describe those individuals who have committed both contact and online offenses. This podcast will answer the following questions. What is child pornography and how prevalent is it? Why do people offend? What are some characteristics of online child pornography offenders and how are these similar or different from those who commit in-person offenses? What is child pornography? Child pornography is defined as the visual depiction of the sexual exploitation of a child, focusing on the child's sexual behavior or genitals, and often includes photographs and or videos that depict direct sexual abuse of a child. Recently, the term child pornography has also been expanded to include written and or audio materials that sexually exploit children and youth. Based on the country, region, and jurisdiction, definitions of child pornography can vary, with differences in age cutoff and what is deemed inappropriate in the specific context at hand. Cultural influences, as well as the nature and intended use of materials, may influence what is defined as legal or illegal. Some regions may define child pornography as material that depicts sexually explicit behaviors of children whereas others may include material of children which may be erotic, but no sexual activity takes place. For example, a photograph of a child provocatively posing in a bathing suit. There are some jurisdictions which would label materials where no child was used in the creation of the material as child pornography. For example, animated children or digitally altered images depicted in erotic or sexual ways. The context and intentions of the picture, video, written, and or audio file must be taken into consideration. Even though some child pornography materials are legal in some jurisdictions, they should still be acknowledged as potentially risky materials, as they can enhance pedophilic tendencies and reinforce deviant sexual interests in children. Within the literature, child pornography can also be called child exploitation material indecent images of children, child sexual exploitation, child abuse images, and child sexual exploitation material. It is important to note that while pornography in general encompasses a large range of erotica depicting sexual behavior that has been present in societies for centuries, pornographic material that includes children is largely condemned and illegal due to the exploitation of people who cannot fully consent Due to their age. For the purpose of this literature review, we will continue to use the term child pornography to describe any online material that is used to depict children and youth in an erotic or sexual manner, as well as any online material that includes children and youth that may be used by an individual for sexual arousal purposes. Online Child Pornography Child pornography existed long before the internet was created. Prior to the internet, accessing child pornography involved a personal risk to the individual offending, as they needed to physically obtain the images or videos, order materials to their home or post office, or go in person to collect materials from specialized shops. The creation of the internet has allowed people to store, access, and disseminate information at an alarmingly quick rate 
which has many benefits for those seeking this material. However, the ease of accessibility, perceived anonymity, and ability to connect with like-minded individuals has significantly increased the prevalence of making, acquiring, and trading of child pornography due to the perceived lower risk of being caught. Between the years of 1994 and 2006, child pornography offenses have been among the fastest growing crimes. There has been much debate as to whether or not the internet has created a new type of criminal, or if this new technology is merely helping facilitate offenses to satisfy underlying behaviors and motivations of child sex offenders. Some researchers argue that online child pornography is attracting individuals who do have a sexual interest in children, but would not have taken the risk before the internet was created. Research has found that there are various typologies of online offenders, with each group having different reasons for their online criminal behavior. Some of these typologies include people who access child pornography impulsively or out of curiosity, but do not have a specific sexual interest in children. People who view child pornography to satisfy sexual fantasies, but do not commit child contact sex offenses. People who produce and distribute child pornography for financial gain. And people who use the internet to facilitate contact sex offenses against children. Prevalence of child pornography. It is difficult to assess the actual prevalence of online child pornography. Websites that host this type of material often change domain names to avoid identification by law enforcement agencies and involve temporary host locations that are constantly rotating between a number of sites. People who access, make, and trade child pornography can do so with peer-to-peer -peer sites through the darknet which is an encrypted and hidden network of websites that cannot be accessed with traditional web browsers like Firefox or Chrome. When requesting to access a website in the darknet, the request will bounce through several different computers around the world, encrypting and decrypting the request as it goes. By the time the website is accessed, it is extremely difficult and sometimes impossible to see where this request actually came from. Without being able to access and count the ever-changing amount of websites that contain child pornography, estimates of prevalence of child pornography vary greatly. Several researchers have attempted to calculate the prevalence of child pornography on the internet. Wolak and colleagues examined files that were shared through peer-to-peer -peer networks online. Based on this, it was estimated that 26,600 known child pornography files were shared on an average day in the United States during a one-year period. However, a majority of these files were shared on only one day or shared only one known child pornography file. 29% of all files during the year were only shared once and on one day, while less than 1% of computers made high annual contributions of child pornography files available on the network that year. This rate is somewhat comparable to other estimates that reported over 870 million child pornography files were shared by more than 100 countries in that same given year. Researchers have reported that the number of online offenders has increased drastically since the early 2000s, as have the resources available to detect child pornography. It is still difficult to discern what is increasing more quickly 
the number of offenders from year to year, or our ability to detect them. Types of child pornography. The most common types of child pornography include pictures and videos. As previously described, written and or audio materials can also be classified as child pornography when children or youth are presented in a sexualized manner. Due to images and videos typically representing actual abuse that has taken place, these forms are considered more severe. There have been some debates as to whether or not audio, written material, or cartoons presenting children in a sexualized manner should be classified as child pornography. Two main arguments include that these are sexual fantasies, and that as long as there is no direct harm on a child or individual, a crime has not been committed. The second argument is that labeling and charging someone as a sex offender based on fantasies in their mind without action is not just. What do you think about these arguments? How would you handle the situation if a parent you are working with was reading or writing child pornography? Child pornography images and videos are often categorized by severity of material to help distinguish between those who offend and their collections. For instance, in the UK, legislation and sentencing of those who participate in accessing, trading, and making child pornography is often based on the severity of the content represented in the material. The Sentencing Guidelines Council created the Levels of Child Abuse Imagery, which is found in the Sexual Offenses Act of 2003. This tiered system set out by the Sentencing Guidelines Council helps identify the type and severity of material being accessed and has allowed some researchers in the UK to explore similarities and differences in offenders' collections. Online Child Pornography Offenders Theories Associated with Offending Routine Activity Theory Routine Activity Theory is a sub-theory of crime opportunity theory, which helps us to better understand macro-level factors of criminality by focusing on the space and time that the crime occurred. One of the key tenets of this theory is that every person may be at risk of committing a crime if the time and space is right. The event, or crime itself, must include three elements. A motivated offender behavior, a suitable target, and a lack of supervision. Routine activity theory has been used to better understand online offenses, as the internet often attracts motivated offenders and offers a space to commit their crimes. Anonymity and the lack of supervision reduces the chances of being caught. Self-control theory. Self-control theory has been used to help better understand criminality. According to this theory, Individuals who have lower self-control engage in crime as they disregard potential consequences of the crime to achieve momentary benefits. Having low self-control is not deterministic that a crime will be committed. However, having higher self-control can sometimes act as a barrier, preventing individuals from engaging in crime. Some behaviors that are associated with lower self-control, such as problems with drugs and alcohol or violence, are positively correlated with online offending, and online offenders are more likely to engage in this behavior. 
General Theory of Crime. The basic tenets of these previous theories were used to create a general theory of crime. This theory suggests that individuals who are low in self-control will commit crimes when and if the opportunity arises. Opportunity is defined as access to a potential victim or target, which can be influenced by situational factors. Situational factors can include both factors that present obstacles to offending or factors that help facilitate offending behaviors. What are some situational factors that may be an obstacle or inhibit someone from offending? What are some situational factors that may help facilitate someone to offend? Is removing the internet from a motivated offender's home enough to inhibit them from offending against children? What other factors do you think must be taken into consideration? For example, access to the internet is a situational factor that can influence whether or not a motivated offender offends against a child online. Those who have access to the internet may be more likely to commit online offenses compared to those who have no or limited internet access. Why do people offend? Better understanding why people choose to make, trade, and view child pornography can help law enforcement and mental health professionals predict who is at a higher risk of continuing child pornography habits and who is at a higher risk of contact offending. The following section will outline reasons that people may sexually offend against children online. Atypical or deviant sexual preferences. Atypical sexuality includes paraphilias, such as pedophilia, hypersexuality, and sexual preoccupation. Some individuals who make, trade, and view child pornography do so because they have sexual interest in children and or adolescents. Sexual interests and preferences towards children or adolescents are often considered deviant to the norm and can sometimes be indicative of an underlying mental health issue. According to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health Disorders, the following characteristics may represent an underlying mental health concern if present. Criterion A. The individual has intense sexually arousing fantasies, sexual urges or behaviors involving sexual activity with a prepubescent child or children, generally 13 years of age or younger. This must continue over a period of at least six months. Criterion B. The individual has acted on these urges, or the sexual urges or fantasies cause significant distress or interpersonal difficulty. Criterion C. The individual is at least 16 years of age and is at least five years older than the child or children in Criterion A. Researchers have determined that people who make trade, and view child pornography are more likely to be diagnosed with pedophilia compared to those who only commit contact offenses. It has been proposed that the use of child pornography depicting prepubescent or pubescent children in preference to other pornography be added to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual as a diagnostic indicator of pedohebophiliac disorder. Child pornography offenders often score significantly higher on measures of sexual deviance than those who commit contact offenses, suggesting that their sexual preference for children is higher. Due to these findings, 
history of child pornography offenses has been established as a valid indicator of pedophilia. When trying to determine some of the sexual preferences and motivations behind online offending, it is important to know the following about the offender. Are they only attracted to children, or are they attracted to adults as well? Are they sexually attracted to male children, female children, or both? Are they sexually attracted to prepubescent children under the age of 11, pubescent children between the ages of 11 and 15, or both? Is their sexual interest limited to incest? Some of the answers to these questions can give you better insight into whether or not the offender in question has pedophilic tendencies. It is important to note that not all individuals who make, trade, and view child pornography are pedophiles, and not all individuals who commit contact sexual offenses against children are pedophiles. The diagnosis of this specific paraphilic disorder must be made by a trained professional. It is important to know whether or not the offender in question has a paraphilic disorder, as the treatment options and a plan of action would be different based on this diagnosis. When an individual is suspected of or arrested with an online offense against a child, it is often difficult to assess whether or not that individual has an actual sexual interest in children. Of course, the most direct way to determine this is by asking the offender. However, due to the stigma attached to this admission of sexual interest, the individual may not always tell the truth. A 2017 study identified six variables that significantly predicted admission or diagnosis of sexual interest in children indirectly based on police records and demographic information of the offender. These six variables include never married, child pornography content included videos, child pornography content included sex stories involving children, evidence of interest in child pornography spanned two or more years, the individual volunteered in a role with high access to children, and engaged in online sexual communication with a minor or officer posing as a minor. Antisociality. Antisociality encompasses characteristics associated with criminal and antisocial behaviors. Some of these characteristics include things such as lifestyle instability, lack of prosocial activities, risk-taking behaviors, substance misuse, and cognitive distortions. Antisocial tendencies and behaviors in themselves do not determine whether or not someone will commit an online offense. However, these tendencies may help facilitate acting on these sexual desires and motivations due to the individual's ability to overcome psychological and situational inhibitions that may obstruct individuals in the general population. For example, those who are high in risk-taking and impulsivity are indifferent to those they may harm. They may be more likely to engage in antisocial behaviors, such as online offending. Skewed morals, a lack of fear or anxiety about negative consequences, and a lack of concern about social norms and legal prohibitions may influence whether or not an individual acts on their sexual desire and motivations. Therefore, some individuals with more of an antisocial orientation are less likely to embrace moral positions 
against adult child sex or respect laws prohibiting this behavior. Some research has found that child pornography offenders without evidence of antisocial traits are at a lower risk to commit future contact sexual offenses than contact sexual offenders. When asked about sexual interest, both men and women who endorsed sexual interest in children reported that they were more willing to engage in criminal activities, such as robbing a bank or committing a murder, and more willing to engage in high-risk sexual activities. This has led some researchers to assert that non-sexual and sexual offending are intrinsically linked. Interpersonal Deficits Interpersonal deficits encompass a wide range of problems with social skills, building and maintaining stable and positive relationships, and feelings of loneliness and isolation. Research has explored past relationships, attachment styles, and adverse childhood experiences of people who are sexually interested in children and youth. Some results show that adults in the population of those who are sexually interested in children are more likely to have experienced emotional, physical, and sexual abuse, to have witnessed domestic violence, and to have insecure attachment styles. Never having been married has also been distinguished as a potential indicator for increased sexual interest in children, as this may serve as a marker for interpersonal difficulties involving other adults. Feeling more comfortable with children than adults and having stronger emotional identification with children has been found as a reason why some offenders are drawn to relationships with children instead of adults. Types of offenders. Distinguishing between types of offenders who commit crimes against children has become increasingly important as differences between groups of offenders are becoming more evident in the research. Three types of individuals who commit sexual offenses against children are distinguished in the literature. Child pornography online offenders are individuals who only commit their offenses online such as making, trading, and viewing child pornography. Contact offenders are individuals who only commit their offenses in person. And mixed offenders are individuals who commit both online and in-person offenses. Online sexual offending has been labeled a hypermale phenomenon, with more than 99% of those individuals in online offender samples being male. In general, child pornography online offenders tend to be younger, are less likely to identify as a minority, have a higher education and IQ, and are more likely to have a skilled or managerial level job. Contact offenders are more likely to be older, unemployed, and have more extensive criminal histories. As previously outlined, child pornography online offenders score higher on measures of sexual deviance suggesting that their sexual preference for children is higher than those who commit contact offenses. In spite of this, child pornography online offenders often show higher degrees of empathy for children and greater self-control, which may influence their decision to offend online instead of in person. While interpreting research findings, it is important to think critically about the relationship between the variables that are being examined. Sometimes there are mediating variables 
that we do not think of that can influence this relationship. For example, let's focus on this research finding. Online offenders tend to be younger, Caucasian, and more educated than contact offenders. These specific characteristics of online offenders can all be mediated by factors such as socioeconomic status and access to the internet. People who are more educated are more likely to have higher paying jobs. If you have the available resources to purchase a computer and pay for internet, you have a greater potential to access online child pornography compared to people who do not have access to computers or the internet. Mediating factors are important to highlight before making decisions about a specific case. Some researchers hypothesize that the possession and use of child pornography may act as a behavioral pathway that will lead to future contact offending. This is important to further explore as it can help guide the treatment and intervention of those who offend online with hopes of rehabilitation without offending in person. Other researchers believe that online contact offending can act as a diversion from contact offending as it is an outlet for offenders deviant sexual fantasies without acting on them. Based on your own knowledge and experience, do you think that viewing child pornography is a pathway that will eventually lead to future contact offenses? Or is it a diversion or outlet for an individual to explore their fantasies without acting on them? What makes you think this? How may this perspective impact your decisions on cases where child pornography is involved? Mixed offenders. There is a subset of child pornography offenders who also commit contact offenses. This group of individuals receive a lot of attention in the literature as researchers and professionals want to better understand the relationship between watching child pornography online and committing offenses in person and to determine under what circumstances a person who watches child pornography is at risk of offending in person. Some researchers have suggested that mixed offenders are more predatory and opportunistic than child pornography only offenders, but more research is needed. Contact offenses within the sample of child pornography offenders have ranged from 1 to 85%. Perhaps the most accurate portrayal of child pornography offenders and contact offenders is a meta-analysis conducted by CETO and colleagues where they examined 24 samples of child pornography offenders. According to official records of arrests, charges, or convictions, it was found that 12% of child pornography offenders had a documented sexual contact offense at the time of their arrest. However, when asked to self-report contact offenses, 55% of child pornography offenders reported that they had also made a contact offense. With these types of findings, there seems to be a large discrepancy between what we know about child pornography offenders and what is actually happening. The majority of studies that explore child pornography and sexual contact offenses against children are based on samples of offenders who have already been detected. However, there is a vast amount of child pornography and sexual contact offenses against children that go undetected, which means that there are inherent biases in the samples at hand. For example, within the child pornography online offenders group, 
There may be people who have committed contact offenses against children, but have yet to be caught. Wolak and colleagues estimated that approximately 10% of investigations of online child pornography that ended in arrest detected contact offenders that may not have otherwise been caught. In the print version of this research review, there is a reference chart in page 13 which outlines some of the differences found between child pornography online offenders, contact offenders, and mixed offenders. You can find this chart for your reference at www.parkcanada.org and search online child pornography in the Particles Library. Conclusions this podcast has focused on current literature pertaining to online child pornography and those individuals who commit sexual offenses against children. Understanding the reasons why people are drawn to online child pornography and the characteristics associated with online offending can help support professionals' insight into the problem at hand. While it is unclear whether child pornography is increasing in prevalence, or whether we have become more adept at measuring this phenomenon, technological advances such as internet access are tools offenders can use to make and trade material. Research literature highlights both similarities and differences between child pornography-only users, contact offenders, and mixed offenders. One of the key challenges, however, is that many of these characteristics are found in the general population, and do not guarantee that an individual will offend. Those with a history of child pornography offenses often score higher on measures of sexual deviance when compared to people who commit contact offenses against children. The habitual viewing of child pornography can indicate sexual preference for children, and thus child pornography offenses have been established as a valid indicator of pedophilia. So where do we go from here? Many child welfare professionals are concerned with whether or not a person who commits online offenses will later commit contact offenses against children. The next podcast in this series will discuss the likelihood of offenders re-offending, who they may target, treatment options available for offenders, and how to protect the children and youth you work with from online sexual offenses. Key Summary Points Online child pornography is often indicative of actual sexual abuse that has occurred. Even if a person was not directly involved with the abuse in question, viewing or continuing to distribute the materials displaying this exploitation is assisting the perpetual victimization of that child or children. In the research, there are similarities and differences between child pornography-only users, contact offenders, and mixed offenders. Many of these characteristics can be found in the general public as well. Exhibiting or experiencing one or more of these factors does not guarantee that someone will commit a sexual offense against a child or youth. People who have a history of child pornography offenses often score higher on measures of sexual deviance compared to people who commit contact offenses against children. The habitual viewing of child pornography can indicate sexual preference for children, and thus child pornography offenses have been established as a valid indicator of pedophilia.
You have been listening to the podcast series, episode 47, part 1, Online Child Pornography. At parkcanada.org, you can access part 2 of this episode, as well as literature reviews in print format in the Particles Library. The podcast series is produced by Practice and Research Together, a membership-based organization that promotes the understanding and use of evidence-informed practice at all levels of the child welfare system. For more information about and additional resources on this episode's topic, the podcast series, or Practice and Research Together, please visit www.partcanada.org.